Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This reading is the first in a series of five events that are happening around the publication of this anthology, Black Nature, 400 Years of African American Nature Poetry, a remarkable book edited by Camille Dungy, who's here, which includes some of the work of Natasha Trethaway. Her first book of poems is called Domestic Work. Um, we have a copy of it here. It won the Cave Canem Prize, prize for the best first book of poems by an African-American writer. Her second book, Belloc's um, Ophelia, turns to her experience of, of growing up in New Orleans and, and in a deep way to this work of memory in, in a remarkable suite of poems, Storyville Diary, that imagine the world of um, biracial prostitutes in that Belle Epoque, where most of us know it from Louis Mull's film. Uh, you'll now know it if, if from this uh, haunting book of poems. The third book is called, I want to look again and say Native Guard because I want to say uh, National Guard. The Native Guard was the term for the black uh, military that was formed by the Union to guard for the state of Louisiana. And one of their jobs was to guard white Confederate prisoners on an island just off the coast of Gulfport. A story that does not get told if you visit, visit that place. And Natasha goes to that story, goes to the story of her experience of growing up in Mississippi as the daughter of a white father and a black mother at a time when miscegenation was a crime in the state of Mississippi and goes to uh, a story, uh, a set of elegies that deal with, also with the stories from her mother's life. Uh, it's a remarkable book. Um, it, it, as she does, works in and semi-invents new forms of the blues, the blues sonnet, Rapolic, uh, uh, for, I mean, not the Rapolic, what's the name of the, what is the name of the, um, that, it's not the Villanelle, what's that other form you're with? In the Pantoum, in, the, in that, in that uh, book. Repetitive forms, that have to do with the cyclicalness of memory, forms that call on um, some of the deepest kinds of sadness and survival in American culture and the blues forms. Um, And she speaks to, again, to these different layers, historical experience, personal experience, experience that it's as if William Faulkner had to invent Natasha Trethewey to tell the story of what happened after light in August to the issue of race in, in uh, Mississippi. Anyway, it's thrilling to have her here today. Please welcome Natasha Trethewey. Thank you. 
It's such a delight to be here, and I and I love the idea of thinking that it was indeed like William Faulkner who invented me. I mean, because the, you know the, the creation of such a possibility that a, a Mississippian like me would exist uh, certainly comes out of Faulkner's world. Thank you for that, Bob. This lovely introduction. Um, so, because I am here as part of this um, wonderful symposium about a very wonderful book, um, I, I thought that um, I and and since I'm reading some nature poems tonight, I thought that today at lunchtime I would try to read some poems that suggest um, the intersections between nature or the natural and what is rendered unnatural in its wake. My birthplace is uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, um, one of those towns that was wiped out during Hurricane Katrina. And it's always seemed to me that that place is a perfect metaphor for this idea of historical memory and historical erasure. Uh, In the middle of the 20th century, they uh, created the world's longest man-made beach uh, on the Gulf Coast. Um, And to do that, they bulldozed all the mangrove swamps and dumped a bunch of sand and planted some... uh, some trees that weren't there before. And of course, it was this very thing that uh, left the coast much more vulnerable to uh, the heavy winds of Hurricane Katrina. One of the things that uh, always sort of bothered me um, after uh, having turned in this book, I I turned in my last book, Native Guard, to my publisher in March of 2005. And uh, the very first poem in the book it was very much a kind of figurative meditation on the impossibility of going home, going to these landscapes that we'd left behind, not because they had changed, but because we change when we go away and are constantly changing. But by August 29th, it became quite literal. Um, I was actually sitting in a classroom uh, at Duke University um, waiting to... Uh, hear from my family, and uh, Ragini is here from that from that time, so it feels like I, I've, I've been taken back there in, in a way. Um, so after that, the poem became quite literal, and I realized that what I had done, strangely, was to write an elegy for my hometown, uh, as unnatural as that seems, before it was gone. Theories of time and space... You can get there from here, though there's no going home. Everywhere you go will be somewhere you've never been. Try this. Head south on Mississippi 49, one by one, mile markers ticking off another minute of your life. Follow this to its natural conclusion. Dead end at the coast, the pier at Gulfport where riggings of shrimp boats are loose stitches in a sky threatening rain. Cross over the man-made beach, 26 miles of sand dumped on the mangrove swamp, buried terrain of the past. Bring only what you must carry, tome of memory, its random blank pages. On the dock where you board the boat for Ship Island, someone will take your picture. The photograph, who you were, will be waiting when you return. This next poem has an epigraph from Robert Herrick that reads, Fair daffodils, we weep to see you haste away so soon. Genus Narcissus. 
The road I walked home from school was dense with trees and shadow, creekside and lit by yellow daffodils, early blossoms bright against winter's last gray days. I must have known they grew wild, thought no harm in taking them. So I did, gathering up as many as I could hold, then presenting them in a jar to my mother. She put them on the sill, and I sat nearby, watching light bend through the glass, day easing into evening, proud of myself for giving my mother some small thing. Childish vanity, I must have seen in them some measure of myself, the slender stems, each blossom a head lifted up toward praise or bowed to meet its reflection. Walking home those years ago, I knew nothing of Narcissus or the daffodil short spring, how they dry like graveside flowers, rustling when the wind blew, a whisper treacherous from the sill. Be taken with yourself, they said to me. Die early to my mother. What is evidence? Not the fleeting bruises she'd cover with makeup, a dark patch as if imprint of a scope she'd pressed her eye too close to, looking for a way out, nor the quiver in the voice she'd steady, leaning into a pot of bones on the stove, not the teeth she wore in place of her own, or the official document, its seal and smeared signature, fading already, the edges wearing. Not the tiny marker with its dates, her name, abstract as history. Only the landscape of her body, splintered clavicle, pierced temporal, her thin bones settling a bit each day, the way all things do. This poem relies a little bit on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Myth. I was asleep while you were dying. It's as if you slipped through some rift, a hollow I make between my slumber and my waking, the Erebus I keep you in, still trying not to let go. You'll be dead again tomorrow, but in dreams you live, so I try taking you back into morning. Sleep heavy, turning, my eyes open, I find you do not follow. Again and again, this constant forsaking. Again and again, this constant forsaking. My eyes open, I find you do not follow. You back into morning, sleep heavy, turning. But in dreams you live, so I try taking, not to let go. You'll be dead again tomorrow. The Erebus I keep you in, still trying, I make between my slumber and my waking. It's as if you slipped through some rift, a hollow. I was asleep while you were dying.
every year in um, Mississippi in a couple of towns like Vicksburg and Natchez, uh, they host annual uh, pilgrimages um, where people get to, to go back and uh, explore the old antebellum mansions. They started doing this not long after the Civil War to raise money for the very devastated uh, southern towns. And uh, so when they're all decked out with flowers, the, the women are decked out in uh, their antebellum clothes, and we get a taste of the Old South. Pilgrimage, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Here, the Mississippi carved its mud-dark path, a graveyard for skeletons of sunken riverboats. Here, the river changed its course, turning away from the city as one turns, forgetting from the past. The abandoned bluffs land sloping up above the river's bend, where now the Yazoo fills the Mississippi's empty bed. Here, the dead stand up in stone, white marble on Confederate Avenue. I stand on ground once hollowed by a web of caves. They must have seemed like catacombs in 1863 to the woman sitting in her parlor, candlelit underground. I can see her listening to shells explode, writing herself into history, asking what is to become of all the living things things in this place. This whole city is a grave. Every spring pilgrimage, the living come to mingle with the dead, brush against their cold shoulders in the long hallways, listen all night to their silence and indifference, relive their dying on the green battlefield. At the museum, we marvel at their clothes, preserved under glass so much smaller than our own, as if those who wore them were only children. We sleep in their beds, the old mansions hunkered on the bluffs, draped in flowers, funereal, a blur of petals against the river's gray. The brochure in my room calls this living history. The brass plate on the door reads Prissy's room. A window frames the river's crawl toward the gulf. In my dream, the ghost of history lies down beside me, rolls over, pins me beneath a heavy arm. Scenes from a Documentary History of Mississippi. One, King Cotton, 1907. From every corner of the photograph, flags wave down the main street in Vicksburg. Stacked to form an arch, the great bales of cotton rise up from the ground like a giant swell, a wave of history flooding the town. When Roosevelt arrives a parade, the band will march, and from every street corner, flags wave down. Words on a banner, cotton, America's king, have the sound of progress. This is two years before the South's countermarch, the great bowls of cotton risen up from the ground, infested with boll weevils, a plague, biblical, all around. Now, Negro children ride the bales, clothes stiff with starch. From up high in the photograph, they wave flags down for the president who will walk through the arch, bound for the future, his back to us. 
The children on their perch, those great bales of cotton rising up from the ground, stare out at us. Cotton surrounds them, a swell, a great mound, bearing them up, back toward us. From the arch, from every corner of the photograph, flags wave down, and great bales of cotton rise up from the ground. Two, Glyph, Aberdeen, 1913. The child's head droops as if in sleep. Stripped to the waist in profile, he's balanced on the man's lap. The man, gaunt in his overalls, cradles the child's thin arm. The sharp elbow, white signature of skin and bone, pulls it forward to show the deformity, the humped back curve of spine punctuating the routine hardships of their lives. How the child must follow him into the fields, haunting the long hours, slumped beside a sack, his body asking how much cotton, or in the kitchen, leaning into the icebox, how much food, or kneeling beside him at the church house, why, Lord, why? They pose as if to say, look, this is the outline of suffering, the child shouldering it, a mound like dirt heaped on a grave. Three, flood. They have arrived on the back of the swollen river, the barge dividing it, their few belongings clustered about their feet. Above them, the National Guard hunkers on the levee, rifles tight in their fists, they block the path to high ground. One group of black refugees, the caption tells us, was ordered to sing their passage onto land like a chorus of prayer, their tongues the tongues of dark bells. Here, the camera finds them still, posed as if for a school day portrait, children lace fingers in their laps, one boy gestures allegiance, right hand over the heart's charged beating. The great river all around, the barge invisible beneath their feet, they fix on what's before them, the opening in the sight of a rifle, the camera's lens, the muddy cleft between barge and dry land, all of it aperture, the captured moments, chasm in time. Here, in the angled light of 1927, they are refugees from history. The barge has brought them this far. They are waiting to disembark. Four, you are late. The sun is high and the child's shadow, almost fully beneath her, touches the sole of her bare foot on concrete. Even though it must be hot, she takes the step. Her goal to read is the subject of this shot. A book in her hand, the library closed, the door just out of reach. Stepping up, she must look at the two signs, read them slowly once more. The first one, in pale letters, barely shows against the white background. Though she will read Greenwood Public Library for Negroes, the other bold letters on slate will lead her away, out of the frame, a finger pointing left. 
I want to call her, say, wait, but this is history. She can't linger. She'll read the sign that I read. You are late. You know, about 12 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, the state of Alabama voted whether or not to remove the anti-miscegenation laws from the books. And though they did vote to get rid of them, about 40-some percent of the population wanted to keep them so that at least symbolically it could be said that parents like mine couldn't be married legally and people like me born legally in the state. Miscegenation. In 1965, my parents broke two laws of Mississippi. They went to Ohio to marry, returned to Mississippi. They crossed the river into Cincinnati, a city whose name begins with a sound like sin, the sound of wrong, miss in Mississippi. A year later, they moved to Canada, followed a route the same as slaves, the train slicing the white glaze of winter, leaving Mississippi. Faulkner's Joe Christmas was born in winter, like Jesus, given his name for the day he was left at the orphanage, his race unknown in Mississippi. My father was reading War and Peace when he gave me my name. I was born near Easter, 1966, in Mississippi. When I turned 33, my father said, It's your Jesus year. You're the same age he was when he died. It was spring, the hills green in Mississippi. I know more than Joe Christmas did. Natasha is a Russian name though I'm not. It means Christmas child, even in Mississippi. I'm going to close now with two poems. This one is after a chalk drawing by J.H. Hasselhorst, 1864. Knowledge. Whoever she was, she comes to us like this. Lips parted, long hair spilling from the table like water from a pitcher, nipples drawn out for inspection. Perhaps to foreshadow the object she'll become, a skeleton on a pedestal, a row of skulls on a shelf. To make a study of the ideal female proportions, four men gather around her. She is young and beautiful and drowned, a Venus de Medici risen from the sea, sleeping. As if we could mistake this work for sacrilege, the artist entombs her body in a pyramid of light, a temple of science over which the anatomist presides. In the service of beauty, to know it, he lifts a flap of skin beneath her breast as one might draw back a sheet. We will not see his step-by-step parsing, a translation, Mary or Catherine or Elizabeth, to corpus, areola, vulva. In his hands, instruments of the empirical, scalpel, pincers, cold as the room must be cold, all the men in coats trimmed in velvet or fur, soft as the down of her pubis.
One man is smoking. Another tilts his head to get a better look. Yet another at the head of the table peers down as if enthralled, his fist on a stack of books. In the drawing, this is only the first cut, a delicate wounding, and yet how easily the anatomist's blade opens a place in me, like a curtain drawn upon a room in which each learned man is my father. And I hear again his words. I study my crossbreed child a misnomer, the language of zoology, natural philosophy. In this scene, he is the preoccupied man, an artist, collector of experience, the skeptic angling his head, his thoughts tilting toward what I cannot know, the marshaller of knowledge, knuckling down a stack of books, even the dissector, his scalpel in hand like a pen poised above me, aimed straight for my heart. Elegy for my father. I think by now the river must be thick with salmon. Late August, I imagine it as it was that morning, drizzle needling the surface, mist at the banks like a net settling around us, everything damp and shining. That morning, awkward and heavy in our hip waders, we stalked into the current and found our places, you upstream a few yards and out far deeper. You must remember how the river seeped in over your boots and you grew heavier with that defeat. All day I kept turning to watch you, how first you mimed our guides casting, then cast your invisible line, slicing the sky between us. Then, rod in hand, how you tried again and again to find that perfect arc, flight of an insect skimming the river's surface. Perhaps you recall I cast my line and reeled in two small trout we could not keep. Because I had to release them, I confess, I thought about the past, working the hooks loose, the fish writhing in my hands, each one slipping away before I could let go. I can tell you now that I try to take it all in, record it for an elegy I'd write one day, when the time came, your daughter, I was that ruthless. What does it matter if I tell you I learned to be? You kept casting your line, and when it did not come back empty, it was tangled with mine. Some nights, dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.